um, and determine what is being written and how it applies to each church that it's being written to. to so today we're going to cover the church at Ephesus, um, but actually first let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. You've blessed us with uh, a morning to come together in fellowship and to be educated in your word, to be edified and uh, for good fellowship. Thank you for this day that you've given us the day of rest, that we rest and trust in your finished work. And I pray that you will guide us in going through and navigating through the book of Revelation in order to achieve a greater understanding of who you are and what you would have us know. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we think of Revelation, we often think of things that can and will happen in the future. But what has probably escaped most of our attention is that there is an immediate and practical application to what Jesus is addressing in each of the churches. Now we can see the state of each of these seven churches and the state of our own walk with Jesus by looking at what Jesus has to say to each church in each section. Now, I have a lot of notes to go through. There's a lot of information to be gathered from the book of Revelation, but obviously due to time constraints, we're not going to go through all of it. But my goal is to address, uh, well, concerning the letters to the seven churches, they each one of the letters have a similar structure and each have an address to a particular congregation, um, an introduction of who Jesus is, and in each letter you'll find a statement regarding the condition of that church. Now, each of the seven churches, many of you may not know, were all located in the same country of Turkey. Okay, I, I was going to print out a map. I should have, but I didn't get to it. Um, and then also, um, we're going to see that Jesus renders a verdict on the condition of that church. He gives it a command, a general exhortation, and then a promise of reward. Okay, so today we're going to cover Jesus's letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, what we need to understand first is the character of the city of Ephesus. When we see in Revelations uh, chapter 2, he, he says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now, to the angel, um, as discussed under Revelation 1 verse 20, this angel may be the pastor of the church of Ephesus or an angel looking in on the workings of the church. Uh, but in some way, this angel represents this particular church. But the letter isn't written just to the representative, but rather to the entire church at Ephesus. Okay, now Ephesus. What you have to understand about Ephesus, it was a it was a famous city in the ancient uh, world. <coughs> excuse me, uh, with an equally famous church. Now Paul ministered in Ephesus for three years, as we find in the books of uh, Book of Acts, uh, chapters nineteen, chapters twenty. Aquila and Priscilla, with Apollos, served there as well. And Paul's close associate, Timothy, uh, worked in Ephesus as well. Now, according to strong and uh, consistent historic tradition, uh, the Apostle John is also uh, known to have ministered there as well. Now, Ephesus was a great city. It was world famous as a religious, cultural, and economic center of the region. It had the notable Temple of Diana. Now, how many of you guys have been over there? I know... Mark and Tammy have. If you've ever looked at the Temple of Diana, it is, it's actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's, it's got, it's, it's, it looks like something you would see in Washington, uh, D.C. <coughs> but the Temple of Diana was built for 
a fertility goddess, and it was worshipped with immoral sex in it. This tremendous temple um, was regarded as one of the seven wonders, as I said. It was supported by 127 pillars, each pillar 60 feet tall, and it was adorned with a lot of sculptures. Now, the temple of Artemis, or also known as Diana, was also, or excuse me, right next to it, was also a major treasury and a bank of the ancient world. So we see a lot of financial concerns going on here because it was also a port city. Uh, The city of Ephesus was right on the, the Mediterranean Ocean there. Lost my place. Ephesus was also what's considered a stronghold of Satan. There were many evil things, both superstitious and satanic, were practiced there. Books containing formula for sorcery and other godly and um, ungodly and forbidden arts were plentiful in that city. There is a library there, also something I wish I kind of would have printed out, but it's a two-story library, uh, which was not exactly common during that time. Now, when Jesus is addressing, and another thing too, often when we read the book of Revelation, we don't we think about it as a letter written by John, uh, which it is, but the reality is it's Christ speaking through John. I, that just kind of hit me when I thought about that more. Jesus describes himself to the church at Ephesus. He says, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, okay? <clears throat> he, hold, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, these images were taken from John's vision that Jesus gave him in Revelation. They emphasize the authority of Jesus in the church, Jesus holding the seven stars and his immediate presence in the church. Uh, he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Each of the churches in, in ancient Turkey were were located almost in a circle, kind of in a circle of each other, okay? Um, Where was I? Sorry about that. In ancient Greek word, kratean, this is an emphatic and a complete word. Jesus has these churches and holds them securely. The churches belong to Jesus, uh, not the leaders of the churches or to the people of the churches. Christ emphasizes that he is the one that holds the churches, Now, what Jesus knows about the Christians of Ephesus, Jesus knows, and you'll see there, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and then you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now, when we see where Jesus says, I know your works, Jesus looked at his church, he knew its condition, and it was no mystery to him, okay? There may be sin or corruption hidden in a congregation, but it isn't hidden to Christ. That's the emphasis there. Uh, He would say the same thing to us today, both as individuals and a congregation, I know your work. So when we read this book, when we read this letter to the church of Ephesus, the, the question for us stands, how or does it apply to us? individually and collectively, and if so, how does it apply, okay? Now, Charles Spurgeon said, there there are also working Christians who do not approach to laboring, yet a lifetime of such work as theirs would not exhaust a butterfly. Now, when a man works for Christ, he should work with all his might. Your works, your labor, your patience, Jesus knew what this church did right, okay? 
They worked hard for the Lord and they had a godly endurance. Patience is the great uh, ancient Greek word hupomone, which means steadfast insurance. In this sense, the church in Ephesus was rock solid in regards to its patience. What he also noted, what Christ also noted about this church is they could not bear those who evil, uh, those who were considered evil. The, the Ephesian church pursued doctrinal purity. That's what they were known for, okay? Paul warned the Ephesians in Acts uh, verse 20 through 29, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is a pretty serious warning. Think about this. <clears throat> also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. This is a pretty solemn warning. From this commendation of Jesus, we know that the Ephesians took Paul's warning very seriously. <clears throat> Excuse me, my allergies are killing me today. The church today, like the Ephesian church then, must vigorously test those who claim to be messengers from God, especially those who will say they are apostles. And we do see that. And we don't see that so much out here. But you do see that in the, in the modern American church. You, you see this new, uh, new apostolic reformation, people claiming to be apostles of God, people claiming to have new revelation, uh, people claiming to have new prophecies and things like that. But Paul commends us to test these things, to see if they're actually true. And he warns us that if we don't do these things, it is a great detriment not only to the church or to the congregation, but to the church itself. There was, um, this was grand of him. It showed a backbone of truth. And Paul, and, and the letter is commending, Christ is commending the church for having a doctrinal purity. But at the same time, he's saying, be very careful, watch out. Um, I wish some of the churches of this age had a little of this whole, uh, again, sorry, this is Spurgeon. This was grand of them. It showed a backbone of truth. I wish some of the churches of this age had a little of this holy decision about them. For nowadays, if a man can be clever, he may preach the vilest lie that was ever vomited from the mouth of hell, and it will go down with some. And we see that happening all the time. You've got to ask yourself, what is Christ talking about here? What is Paul warning about? Now, we often we find ourselves in a comfort zone in a church like this because we know that we teach what is doctrinally sound. Then we go out into the world and we adopt every other thing outside of that, okay? We tend to listen to things that sound good and make us feel good, but we, we often fail to ask the question, is it actually true? And that's what Paul is warning about here. Um, and then in regards to patience, you have persevered and have patience and you have labor, labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Also, the Ephesian church continued doing these things without becoming weary. They showed a godly perseverance that we should imitate by all outward appearances. This was a solid church that worked hard, had a great outreach, and protected the integrity of the gospel. So now, Christ goes into what he was calling out, what he was saying is not right with the church. So first he commends the church for saying, you guys, are, you're getting your doctrine right. You're, you're being careful with what is being taught, okay? And you're not grabbing onto those things that aren't right. But now let's talk about what is not exactly right. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. And that's what I want to emphasize here. Jesus, using a sobering word, 
Nevertheless, which means despite all of that, Jesus took into full account all the good in the Ephesian church, yet despite all of that, he had something against them. He had a a serious problem with what was going on. The word nevertheless means that all the good in the Ephesian church did not cancel out the bad Jesus is about to describe. That's a pretty serious thing to think about. You have left your first love. Despite all the good in the Ephesian church, there's something seriously wrong. They have left, not lost. There's a difference. They left their first love. They once had a love that they don't have anymore. Now, this can be described as a definite and sad departure. Now, think about that. Christ is saying you have left your first love. The the distinction between leaving and losing is important. Something can be lost quite by accident. We know that. But leaving is a deliberate act. Though it may not happen suddenly, and apparently didn't in this case um, as well, when we lose something, we don't know where to find it. But when we leave something, we know where to find it. Though they had left their first love, everything looked great on the outside. Now, think about this in your personal life. Everything may look great on the outside. If you would have attended a service at the church of Ephesus, you might have thought this is a happening church. They're doing so much. They really guard the truth. And at the same time, you might have a vague, uneasy feeling, yet it would probably be kind of hard to pin down. It wasn't hard for Jesus to see the problem, even though everything probably looked wonderful on the outside. The problem was serious. Without love, all is vain. So we must define what love is. Now, no wonder Jesus said, nevertheless, I have this against you. A church has no reason for being a church when she has no love within her heart or when that love grows cold. Lose love, lose all. Again, another quote from Charles Spurgeon. I'm I'm obviously one of his biggest fans. (laughs) Left your first love. What did they leave? So that's the question. What did they leave? Now, as Christians, we are told to love God and to love one another. That's the first and the second commandment, right? Did they leave their love for one another? Did they leave their love for God? Probably both are in mind here because the two loves go together. You can't say you love God and not love his family, and you can't really love his family without loving him first. Okay. Now, the Ephesian church was a working church. Uh, Sometimes a focus on working for Jesus will eclipse a love relationship with him. And we can put what we do for Jesus before who we are in him. We can leave Jesus in the temple, as it were, just as the parents of Jesus did back in Luke uh, chapter 22, verses 45. The Ephesian church was a doctrinally pure church. Sometimes a focus on doctrinal purity will make a congregation cold, suspicious, kind of intolerant of diversity. When love, um, another quote, when love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse, a powerless formalism. Adhesion to the truth sours into bigotry when the sweetness and light of love to Jesus depart. Again, Charles Spurgeon. He he wrote a wonderful book on on what was happening with the churches in in, uh, Revelation. So what was the first love? There is a definite, sure difference in their relationship with Jesus. Things aren't as they used to be in the church of Ephesus. It isn't that we expect that we should have the exact same excitement we had when everything was brand new in the Christian life. 
but the newness should transition into a depth that makes the first love even stronger. For example, a couple that has been married for a long time doesn't always have the same thrill of excitement they had when they first, uh, first dated. That's to be expected. And it's fine. If that excitement has matured into a depth of love, that makes it even better than the first love. There's nothing wrong with that initial excitement or wanting to remain or be restored. When we were in our first love, what we would do for Christ now, how little we do. Some of the actions which we performed when we were young Christians but just converted, when we look back upon them, seem to have been wild and like idle tales. Again from Charles Spurgeon. What Jesus wants the church at Ephesus to do. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. And along with that becomes, comes a serious warning. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. When we go to scripture and we read things uh, in order to, to improve ourselves and to get a better idea of who Christ is and what he would have us do in our lives, if you're anything like me, we often go to those verses that make us feel better. And there's nothing in and of itself wrong with that. We want to improve ourselves. We want to have a greater sense of peace about who Christ is, who Christ is in us. But we often have this, almost like we have this idea in the back of our mind that the warnings don't really apply to us because we're saved. Why do I need to worry about the warnings? But ironically, the warnings should apply to us more so than anybody else, okay? Um, I need to keep my hand where I was. (laughs) There we go, sorry. But this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, so let me back up here a little bit. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you and quickly, come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is a pretty strong phrasing here. Who are the Nicolaitans, and what did he hate about them? So let's examine this verse here. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The first step in restoration for the Ephesian church is for them to remember. They need to remember from where you have fallen. This means remembering where they used to be in their love for the Lord and for one another. Now, when the prodigal son was in the pig pen, the first step in in restoration was remembering what life was like back at his father's home. That's in Luke chapter 15. This is always the first step in getting back to where we should be with the Lord. Repent. This is not a command to feel sorry. It's not a command to feel anything. It means to change your direction, to go a different way, or to remove those things that get in your way of where you should be going. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not just feeling sorry. As a matter of fact, when you look up the word for repentance in the Bible, it has nothing to do with emotion. Okay, There will be a product of emotion, but repentance is a verb. Okay, It's not a noun. It's not an adjective. It is an urgent appeal for instant change of attitude and conduct before it is too late. Again, a serious warning. Do the first works. This means that they must go back to the basics, the very first things they did 
when they first fell in love with Jesus. These are the things that we never grow beyond. So what are the first works? Okay, Remember how you used to spend time in his word. When you first became a Christian, when you were first converted, we were excited. We, we got into the word. We prayed. You maybe even made a prayer list, maybe even made a list of things that you wanted to improve. And that's all great and good. And then what happens? We go back to living, as it were. We go back to you know, well, we got, we got to, we got to pay the bills. We got to go to work. We got to do these things. And we kind of start to fade away from those things that we were first excited about. Do you remember how you used to pray when you were first converted? Do you remember how you used to do those things that mattered in regards to honoring the Lord and loving the Lord and your neighbor? Remember the joy that we often had or that we had when we first got around Christians that you were excited about going to church. Okay. But what happened? Did you ever have any kind of zeal for sharing the gospel? If you're anything like me, which you might be in this regard, sharing the gospel can be kind of a daunting task because you've got to put yourself out there. Sharing the gospel means you've actually got to stand up and expose who you are to the world and say, I'm a Christian and I'm here to tell you that you're getting it wrong. You're on your way to hell. Something's not right. That takes a lot of courage to do that. When's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? You don't have to answer that. I'm just saying, ask yourself that. Why don't you share the gospel? Is it a command or is it a request? I said before, I think a week or two ago, that there has been an omission of the Great Commission. We don't teach ourselves that anymore. We probably don't teach our children that anymore. But if we love the Lord, we say we if we love the Lord as we say we do, and if we are to love people, well, I like to look at it this way. If I saw a man unwittingly and unknowingly walking towards a cliff, how loving would I be to let him continue on that path? How loving would it be for me to have a friend who may not be a believer and say, hey, Man, I just want you to know I love you. As they continue to walk that direction to that one day we know is going to happen, as it's destined for us all, there's going to be that day that they they don't have that ability to turn anymore. If you really love that person, if you really love that friend you say you do, you'll find a way to say to them, hey, listen, you're going for destruction. You're about to walk over a cliff. I love you too much to just sit here and watch you do that. I've got to tell you why. And let's talk about that. If you were challenged to share the gospel with somebody right now, how would you do it? Would you even know how to do it? What would you bring to their attention in order to say, hey, listen, you need to establish a relationship with Christ. You need to understand why you must believe that he died for you. Would you be able to do that? Would you be able to point them to the law, which points them to Christ? Would you be able to point them to the commandments that exposes all of their sin? And the seriousness of it in light of a holy God. How would you do it? That's one of the things that Christ is addressing to the church here. It's a very serious thing. We might say that Satan does a masterful job in creating a sense of general dissatisfaction with these first works. They get old. Seems like they get kind of old sometimes. Christians will run after almost everything new. Strange method or program for growth and stability. Or shortened attention spans make us easily bored and falling asleep in the back row. Sorry. 
for with the truest excitement. Sometimes we will do almost anything except the first words. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. My goodness, this is a pretty serious warning. Jesus gave them a stern warning. Unless you repent, he will remove their light and his presence. Let me say that again. Unless you repent, he will remove their light and his presence. That doesn't sound like a joke to me, okay? When their lampstand was removed, they could continue as an organization as anybody could, but no longer as a true church of Jesus Christ. It would be the church of Ichabod, where the glory had departed, as spoken of in 1 Samuel. Apparently, at least in the short term, the Ephesians heeded this warning, and we know that from church history. In the early 2nd century, not too long after John wrote, uh, a man by the name of Ignatius praised the love and the doctrinal purity of the Ephesians. And he said, you who are of the most holy church of the Ephesians, which so famous and celebrated throughout the world, you being full of the Holy Spirit, do nothing according to the flesh, but all things according to the Spirit. You are complete in Christ Jesus. That was the epistle of Ignatius, which is not included in the, uh, the Bible. It's not in the, the completed canon. Uh, that's in chapter 8. And it's also, um, there's, there's notations of it in the, anti, and the Nicene Fathers volume. That If you guys want to know more about what that is, we can talk about that after. What, from what Ignatius wrote, it seems the Ephesians returned to the first love without compromising doctrinal purity. This isn't always an easy balance to keep, but the Ephesians apparently kept it at least for a time. Okay, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus, probably so the Ephesians would not be overly discouraged, uh, gave this church another compliment. They were complimented because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But who were the Nicolaitans? And what were their deeds? The doctrine of the Nicolaitans is also condemned in Revelations 2, verse 15, and that passage is related to immorality and idolatry. Now, Irenaeus, another historian, writing in the late second century, described what he knew of the Nicolaitans because we do see Nicolaitia, he was one of the first seven deacons of the church, and we see him spoken of in the book of Acts. Okay, so what did he do? History teaches um, the Nicolaitans are the followers of that Nicholas who was one of the seven first ordained to the the deaconate by the apostles. They led lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is plainly pointed out in the Apocalypse of John as teaching that as a matter of indifference to practice adultery. So it was. It's always. It's almost always sexual immorality. It's what it almost always, if not always, comes back to. Okay. Another historian named, I can't pronounce his name, I think it's Hippolytus, a student of Arrhenius, associated the Nicolaitans with the Gnostics. There are, however, he says, among the Gnostics, diversities of opinion. But Nicholas has been the cause of widespread combination of these wicked men. He departed from correct doctrine and was in the habit of inculcating indifferency of both life and food. Okay? Others have emphasized that the root meanings of the words that make up the Nicolaitans, uh, Nicolaos means literally to conquer the people. So that's what his name actually meant. It's kind of interesting. Based on this, to some point, uh, the presumptuous claims of apostolic authority into the heart that sets up hierarchies and separates the clergy from the laity, perhaps the Nicolaitans fulfilled all these aspects with being both an idolatrous and immorality and presumptuous hierarchical hidden mysteries, as it's called, 
uh, system typical of Gnosticism. If you're not familiar with Gnosticism, um, well, well, we'll get into that later. The Nicolaitans, like all deceivers, had came from the body of Christ's claim, not that they were destroying Christianity, but they were presenting an improved and modernized version of it. That's what Christ is condemning. It was a new and modernized version of the gospel. Christ says, which I also hate. Now, we think of God as a God of love, and indeed that is true. It is exceptionally rare if you ever allow the thought of God being a God of righteous hatred. But the reality is, if you love what is good, you will hate what is evil. Okay, If I love Jewish people, I will hate the Holocaust. Okay, there is a, there is, there's not really a dichotomy necessarily between love and hate, or like one, one can't exist without the other one. The reality is that love and hate do exist. It's, the question is whether or not they are righteous hatred and righteous love. Okay, there is a difference. Um, I'm not going to go into the last two things. We've only got a few minutes. But when Christ says, which I also hate, these are powerful words. Um, and they came from our Savior who is rich in love. Whoever exactly the Nicolaitans were and whatever exactly they did and taught, we learned something from Jesus' opinion of them. We learned that the God of love hates sin, and he wants his people to also hate sin. That's the big emphasis here. They were doing something that God did not approve of. Okay? Very strong warning. Um, we're going to go ahead and stop there. We were kind of short on